Coming up, Gmail opens up to third-party add-ons. The internet gets safer. And what does free speech even mean online? It's Wednesday, the second best day of the week. This is Steve Tushankel, and you're listening to the New England Tech Podcast. Tech Podcast is brought to you by Hammerhead Content Management Solutions for media organizations and content creators. You love to write, so why do you hate to publish? Visit us at hammerheadcms.com. Music in the show is by Kurt Baker, Lame Drivers, Monkey Mind, The Pharaohs, and The Barracudas. So this week, I've been trying to book an Airbnb for an upcoming wedding in Vermont, And I've done this so many times. I love Airbnb. I've stayed with them countless times, countless times. I'm a big Airbnb guy. And yet, you know, I'm also the type of guy who never loses my fascination with things, particularly technology-related things. And every time I use Airbnb, I think what a wonder it is, what a marvel it is that we live in this world today when we can book places like Airbnb. You know, think about what technology has wrought in that regard. Think about what booking a hotel or someplace you could stay was like 20, 30 years ago, even you know, more 10, 15 years ago. It was completely different, but Airbnb is one of those companies that has upended entire industries, ways to do things that didn't exist before the internet. Now we're completely different. You know, 20 years ago, you could rent somebody's house out. It was possible, but it was very difficult to do. You, you generally had to use some sort of agency. You had to be in the know. Now anyone can do that sort of thing via Airbnb. You can do it in different ways than you could do it before. It's just completely different. I, you know, I was also thinking about how I bought my house. I own a house that I bought via Redfin. Now, if you're not familiar with Redfin, and it's certainly not as popular as Airbnb, for good reason, not as many people are buying homes as are staying in hotels, Uh, But Redfin is an online real estate agency, and it's completely online, right? You do every single thing online. It is a spectacular digital experience. I love it, and I feel like it should be revolutionizing real estate, just like Expedia many years ago revolutionized travel and kind of killed the travel agent. I wonder why... Redfin isn't killing the real estate agent. Now, I love real estate agents, love working with them. Uh, They are important, but Redfin was just such a better experience. And you work with actual real estate agents. I'll tell you the way it works. So you view a bunch of homes on Redfin, just as you would on Zillow or anything. But on Zillow, that's where it stops. On Redfin, you then get to proceed to book a tour of the home. Now, if you've ever tried to book a tour of a home with a real estate agent before, you know that it is very difficult to manage the scheduling. With Redfin, that is not true at all, right? You see the exact times that are available, you pick a time, that's it, done. And then there's a real agent. A real agent comes and meets you from Redfin, 
and you tour the place. And then eventually, if all goes well, you buy a place. But another great thing is that the agents at Redfin are not uh, working on commission. They're salaried. So you can trust them. Not that you can't trust realtors. I know they have a strict code of ethics. But at Redfin, you really, really know that they don't have any skin in the game. They're not trying to get you to make a purchase because they get paid the same either way. Um, so it's really cool. So these technologies like Airbnb, like Redfin, and I mentioned like Expedia, which is is ancient now, right? I mean, it's been surpassed by other services such as Kayak, um, even though it's still reasonably popular. But all these services have really changed the way we do things. And when I first used the internet many, many years ago, I fell in love with it as a, a content delivery system. You know, the idea of being able to read newspapers in North Carolina. I was in New York or Illinois, and I could read newspapers halfway around the world. That was what was incredible to me. But what I did not necessarily perceive at the time was how entire industries have been upended and changed because of technology. And it was so much harder before. It was so much harder to get these things done. So much more time-consuming, so much more expensive. So... We all have our issues with how the internet has affected our society. We've talked about a lot of those issues on this show. But ultimately, it's made a lot of people's lives a lot easier in ways that could not have been foreseen many years ago. And there are still people out there. This is the great thing about the internet, about technology. There are still people out there who are thinking about exciting new ways to innovate. Now, several weeks ago on the podcast, probably six weeks to a month ago, we did a show about the death of innovation, right? About how innovation has slowed down. And that's true. But nonetheless, there's still so much attempt at innovation out there. There's, there are at least people who want to innovate. And who even knows what the next thing they'll come up with is. We would be billionaires if we knew that. But you can just sit back and relax as a spectator and watch it happen. Hey, kids, let's see what's in the news. Gmail this week announced support for third-party add-ons. These add-ons will include productivity applications such as Trello, Smartsheets, and QuickBooks, so you will be able to go into your Gmail and do things that Gmail never envisioned. These are things that other companies, other developers came up with. Now, Chrome plugins have existed to do this for a while, but not everyone uses Chrome. In fact, Gmail is primarily used on mobile devices. Email has become primarily a mobile thing, and Chrome plugins aren't going to do you any good when you're using your mobile device, when you're using your smartphone. So one big advantage of these new Gmail third-party add-ons is that they will work on mobile as well as on your desktop or in any browser, you know, even if you're not using Chrome, if you're using Safari or Firefox or something else. Now, I think that this is a really cool idea, which I have hoped that Gmail would implement before because, frankly, there are some things that you want Gmail to do that it doesn't do, and add-ons can be great for that. Browser add-ons, you know, we just mentioned Chrome plugins, things like that. When a product is being developed, when a digital product is being developed, they're trying to, I don't want to say the lowest common denominator, that's not true at all, but what the product managers and the developers and the UX people are trying to do 
and I know this from experience, uh, from many years of experience in the industry, is that they're trying to appeal to the, the widest possible audience. You know, they're trying to think about what will the majority of people want to do here? And you don't want to necessarily offer multiple ways to do things because that complicates things too much. And if there's one thing that users hate, it's a product that's overcomplicated. Keep it simple, stupid. Kiss, right? That's the concept. So if you have a particular way that you want to use something and the product doesn't work that way, an add-on that makes it do that that makes it do that thing can be a lifesaver. When I used Firefox a lot of years ago, there were so many cool add-ons for Firefox. And I used to use a lot of them, like a, an add-on I remember I used to use religiously where you could go back and forth. You could go back to the last page and forward to the next page by just swiping your mouse back and forth while holding down a mouse button. These are things that most users aren't interested in, but it worked for me. So third-party add-ons are coming to Gmail, and that's exciting because even if you don't use Trello or Smartsheets or QuickBooks, there may very well be an add-on coming soon that you will want to use because they're personalized for you. Uh, now, another thing about third-party add-ons is that they can be both a blessing and a curse, right? They can be great for all those reasons, but they can also kind of muck up the system. They can ruin the elegance of the application. Remember, I said keep it simple, keep it simple, stupid? Well, that simplicity is what makes great digital products. If you're adding a third-party add-on that doesn't necessarily have the, the elegance of the core product and is developed by a different team that doesn't necessarily appreciate the importance of the elegance. They're not simpatico with the, the aesthetic of the product with the user experience. That can definitely mess things up. And, and the gray area that's so painful is when you find an add-on that you really like, that you really need, but uh, they didn't quite get it. They didn't quite get it. So I actually have faith in Google's ability to vet these add-ons because that's something Google is very good at. They're good at vetting. So check out these new add-ons and let me know what you think. Tweet me at stishankel, S-T-I-S-Z-E-N-K-E-L, or email me at stevetishankel.com. Next up, Google, speaking of Google, says that 64% of Chrome traffic on Android is now protected with HTTPS. So HTTPS is growing a lot in popularity. 75% of traffic on Macs and 66% on Windows as well. So Chrome, interestingly, is on the low end of that, the uh, Chrome being a Google product itself. Now, what is HTTPS? I hear some of you out there wondering. You've heard it, undoubtedly. If you're listening to this podcast, I'm sure you've heard it. But what exactly is it? You know, you know that websites used to always start with HTTP colon slash slash whatever, www, you know. Um, and now... In recent years, you've started seeing a lot more that start with HTTPS as opposed to HTTP. Well, when you see a website that starts with HTTPS, that means that it is secured with a certificate, a TLS or SSL certificate. It's encrypted, basically. And that encryption is preventing your passwords and other personal information from being read by third parties that could hijack your session. It also ensures that a site is legitimate. So people are very concerned with security on the internet. I don't have to tell anybody that that concern with security has increased greatly in recent years as time has gone on, as there, as there have been more and more high-profile cases of security breaches. Everybody's worried about the information that they're sending out there, right? Now, Google 
is concerned as well. They know this and they will punish you if you do not use HTTPS. They, uh, not you the user, but you the owner of the website. They announced this a while back that they were going to require you to have HTTPS and if you did not have it, you would be ranked down in the search results. Nobody, nobody in the industry has power like that, like Google has, nobody. Everyone wants to rank high in Google. SEO, I always tell people SEO is the first thing that people ask me about when they find out what I do for a living. They always wanna know about SEO, search engine optimization, which means how can people find you on Google? So when Google comes out and tells the owners of websites, you have to do this thing or you're gonna be punished, oh, they do it. And that's why you're seeing HTTPS adoption jump up from lower numbers to now 64% on Chrome, 75% on a Mac. So HTTPS, you know, that's that's gonna make your life a little more secure digitally. It's not gonna make everything perfect. There'll still be hacks. Your information will still be stolen. I don't know if anybody heard that, uh, we didn't cover this on the podcast, that if you had a Yahoo account several years ago, your information was stolen. Yahoo initially announced that about half of its accounts have been stolen. No, it turns out it was all of them. It was every account. So that, that stuff's gonna happen. HTTPS is not going to help that. But it is going to do something and it's going to get easier and easier for the owners of websites to implement because it becomes more of a standard. You know, I can speak from personal experience here as well. Five, 10 years ago, it was relatively difficult to set up a website on HTTPS. Today, web hosts are offering it for free. They're doing really, really easy setup. They're offering really, really easy setup options. So that's why you're gonna see it more and more in addition to the fact that Google will penalize you if you're not doing it. So you can feel a little more safe and more secure right now and you will be able to continue to feel safer and more secure in the future. Thanks to Google, they're not all bad. Last week, during the big blow-up in Hollywood regarding sexual harassment and sexual assault, the actress Rose McGowan was banned for t- from Twitter, and she was banned for about 12 hours because she had violated Twitter's terms of service, according to Twitter. Now, what she was doing was posting repeatedly about instances of sexual harassment, sexual assault in Hollywood. Most notably, she accused Ben Affleck of lying about his knowledge of Hollywood producer Harvey Weinstein's long history of sexual harassment. Twitter says she violated their terms of service, right? One of those tweets included a private phone number, uh, which is certainly against Twitter's uh, terms of service. But Violations of the terms of service happen all the time. And a lot of people were wondering, why has Donald Trump, the president of the United States, never been banned from Twitter? He's made threats, he said inappropriate things, and yet he's never been banned, but Rose McGowan was while tweeting uh, in support of basically uh, the ending of this whole Hollywood system of sexual, of systematic sexual harassment and sexual assault. Wasn't about a rule she violated, 
or was it about the content of what she said? Well, that's a very good question, and we may never know the real answer to it. Certainly, there was a huge outcry of people who believed strongly that she was being silenced, that she was too powerful a voice and that she was being silenced and Twitter was uncomfortable with that. Here's the thing. Private organizations such as Twitter are not legally required to meet any standards whatsoever of free speech. Free speech is something that we value tremendously in Western society, and nobody supports that more than I do. Well, probably some people support it more, but I'm, I'm probably in the top 10% of people who believe in the power of free speech. I love free speech, and I think it should be nearly absolute, quite frankly, nearly absolute, because there, there are obviously cases where speech is dangerous in some ways, an imminent threat. But free speech is nonetheless very, very important to me and to a lot of other people. And a lot of people see things like Rose McGowan being silenced by Twitter, and they say, what about her rights to free speech? But Twitter doesn't have to give her any rights. Those rights are guaranteed to us in the United States of America by our government. That's what the government does. That's what the Constitution does, and that's what the courts enforce. Twitter is not a government institution, as much as it sometimes seems to be with all those politicians on it. It is a private enterprise. And it can allow or ban any speech it wants. It can basically say that if you believe a certain, uh, uh, if you have a certain political philosophy that you adhere to, they won't let you post. They can do that. There's actually a website called Conservapedia. I love talking about Conservapedia. Conservapedia is Wikipedia for conservatives, right? So some conservatives, most prominently Andrew Schlafly, the, uh, the son of, of legendary uh, conservative Phyllis Schlafly, an anti-feminist activist, uh, they got together and they said, you know, Wikipedia is too biased with its uh, focus on, you know, uh, science, strict science, things like that. It's, it's biased. You know, they wanted to get for example, more uh, uh, traditionally religious points of views in there, and they kept being deleted from Wikipedia articles. So they said, the hell with Wikipedia. We're going to start our own organization. It's called Conservapedia, and we are going to ban all points of view that aren't conservative, right? Whereas theoretically, Wikipedia allows any points of view, as long as they're cited. Um, Conservapedia says, well, there's one point of view here. It's conservative, and if you don't like it, you can lump it. In fact, what I thought was really amusing about Conservapedia when they first launched, I, they've long stopped doing this, but they threatened, they explicitly threatened, it was on their homepage, they threatened anyone who quote-unquote vandalized Conservapedia with prosecution. Prosecution. I don't know if any of these prosecutions ever happened. My guess is no, but <laughs> that's what they said at the time, and that's what I think they've kind of gone back on a little bit. But all this just goes to show you that a private enterprise can do whatever they want. They don't have to adhere to our rules of free speech. So what do they do? What do they do? Well, it's a delicate balance. If you're a Twitter, if you're a Facebook, it's a very delicate balance. If you allow all speech, if you allow anyone to say anything they want, you look bad, right? People get angry at you. People hold you responsible for the things that your worst users say. Now, alternatively, you can ban certain speech, but then you look like you're not adhering to free speech principles. And though, as I mentioned, 
they don't have to adhere to those free speech principles. That's not how everyone else sees it. They're not married to the law. They believe in free speech and they think everybody, even private organizations, should uphold principles of free speech even if they're not legally required to. So you're kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't, right? It's kind of a catch-22. You're going to piss off somebody by either supporting or not supporting free speech principles. And these companies, such as Twitter, such as Facebook, these digital properties, they haven't really figured it out. They haven't entirely figured out how to do it yet. Uh, you know, back in the day, I used to use Usenet news groups, alt.conspiracy.black.helicopters or, you know, whatever you might, uh, uh, whatever you might want to do. And those, those uh, news groups that I used to use, they had no censorship at all. Nothing whatsoever. There were a few moderated groups, but they were self-appointed moderators. It was a total free-for-all. And yeah, awful things went on there. But those awful things probably weren't quite as awful as some of the things that go on on moderated message boards today, right? Usenet was and is a part of the internet that it's it's kind of like the web or like email. It's just it's a separate part of the internet. Nobody owned it. Anyone could create a news group. I created a news group at one point. Um, and it's funny because even though it was a total free-for-all, it wasn't really any worse than some of the things that get said today. Um, today, Usenet is, is virtually unusable, if you ask me, which is sad because I like the independent spirit of it. Now, there are also sites out there such as 4chan, right, where people incite harassment and make threats against other people all the time. Uh, you know, these are the, the people out there who are worse than what was going on on Usenet uh, many years ago. Now, these people who are posting on these sites, they would probably like to believe that they are covered by free speech rules, right? But truth is, they're probably not even covered by a le from a legal perspective. You know, they may think that, oh, well, 4chan has to uphold free speech. They don't. We talked about that. But the law may not uphold the type of speech that they want, threats, incitement, things like that. What about revealing someone's phone number? Is that illegal? Well, that's a bit of a gray area, isn't it? It seems legal by our standards today, but what if you're essentially encouraging people to make threats against the person whose phone number is, even if you're not explicitly saying it? I would say revealing a phone number is an implicit promise that people will make threats against you. That's why you reveal a phone number. So that's a little bit of a gray area. So these are very, very complex issues that are still unresolved, and it's fascinating to see how they play out, and they're still playing out, as we've seen with the Rose McGowan case. There's also the matter of government censorship. Now, here in America, we have it pretty good. Loads of websites are banned in countries such as China. They have something called the Great Firewall. Here in America, we don't do that. We let the free market handle it. We have had our brushes with restricting speech online, though. We've definitely had those, uh, those brushes. For example, in 1996, Congress passed the Communications Decency Act, which was, struck, uh, which was signed into law by President Bill Clinton, and it was struck down by the Supreme Court in 1997, just a year later. Not the whole law, but the provisions of it that prevented indecency. Pornography, basically it was an attempt to ban these things, and that's why the internet is just so filthy today, because we didn't pass, the, or we didn't uphold the Communications Decency Act, or not all of it. So, that happened before, and it can happen again. You just need the right political environment. You have to have the right 
combination of judges and justices on the Supreme Court. There's no reason why that can't happen again. We have the First Amendment, but like I said, First Amendment, not absolute. So just remember this. The internet is a great thing. I love the fact that crazy people can go on and say whatever they want. It's caused some problems. We've talked about this on the podcast before. Uh, It's led to a lot of good things. It's led to some bad things. But there's still this perception that the internet is the Wild West. It's not the Wild West. It once was the Wild West. Many years ago when I started using it in the 90s, it kind of was. It kind of was. In fact, I remember one case back then where somebody wrote, um, I believe it was the University of Michigan, wrote a pornographic story online uh, under his real name, uh, basically threatening um, in a sexual manner a classmate of his. This was this was big news at the time. This, this still sticks with me because it was a landmark case in terms of internet freedom and privacy. But think about this, the fact that somebody back then in the 90s, in the mid early mid-90s, wrote the story under his own name, and then they immediately knew who he was and prosecuted him. And I believe, I'd have to look this up, I believe he went to prison. Um, so that was kind of a watershed moment where the internet went from being the Wild West to a place that's at least somewhat regulated. It's, it, it is somewhat regulated now. It's subject to laws. It's subject to laws. But don't think that any organization out there is responsible for subjecting their users to anything more, to any more scrutiny than what the law allows or what the law requires. They may choose to do that, but they are certainly not required to do so. So if you want to go out there and make edgy comments, absolutely, I encourage you to do it as long as you agree with me because that is what our democracy is all about and that's what free speech is all about. But no that you're doing it at your own risk. I do a whole lot of networking, and when you do networking these days in the year 2017, One of the best ways to do it is a little site called meetup.com, a way to connect with people in real life via the internet. Of course, the internet is real life too, but it's not real life like meeting people in person is real life. So you go to meetup and there's tons and tons of meetup groups, whatever your interest is. I primarily do networking stuff, but if you like woodworking or whatever, there's somebody there for you and you can gather around with them and... You can, uh, you can get together. You can get together for real, and you can meet real friends and make and, uh, and meet real people. Make real friends and meet real people. That's what I'm trying to say. Now, when back when the internet started, that's not what it was about. It was kind of an alternative <laughs> to meeting people in real life. The internet was for nerds. It was for nerds. They didn't want to meet people. They didn't want to meet up in real life. But as the internet became more mainstream, it became more of a social enabler, and that's actually a huge huge advantage of the internet today. We're going to be talking a lot more about that next week. Thanks for listening, everybody. It was great to be here with you a day late, but not a dollar short on this Wednesday. I'm Steve Tishankel. Courage. Queen.